G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We have been exploring the, the very strange story of Cain and Abel, and we have already seen Abel's departure from the scene. Bye-bye, Abel. Cain is also about to leave the story, and we are reaching a turning point in the narrative, but there are a few things to talk about before we say farewell to uh, this black sheep of the family. Yeah, that's right, Chris. God has pronounced Cain's destiny, and now he will indeed be exiled. And as we talked about last week, he wasn't prepared to leave without a protest. Nevertheless, he's now on his way out of the pages of this story. We still have a little bit to talk about regarding Cain, but for now, we want to talk about where he's going. Let's have a look at the scriptures, and we're going to read Genesis 4, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This sounds a bit odd for those of us with a developed theology of God, because we read about Cain going away from God's presence. We're really familiar with the doctrine of an omnipresent God who's always everywhere. We're familiar with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It seems kind of incomprehensible to us that someone could just up and leave to some place where God is not. But that whole idea is kind of missing the point of the text. This isn't about the omnipresence of God. This is Cain turning his back on God. And we see that in the text because... It's Cain who goes away from the face of God, not God turning his face away from Cain. You see how much God is always there for us. In his love for us, he doesn't turn away his face. Incidentally, that's the point also being made in the psalm that I just quoted. So Cain is leaving now, and I keep dropping that little pun there because of his connection to the offering of the fruit of the ground, but it probably wasn't funny enough to get noticed. You know, leaves, fruit, leaves. Okay, I'll leave it. His departure is quite intentional, and we see that in the emphasis placed on the verb in Hebrew because of the repetition in the phrase that we don't see in the English translation. It literally says, going, Cain went, which gives that kind of emphasis that I was talking about. So where did Cain go then? What is this land of Nod that it talks about? Why, it's a magical place, Chris, where all your dreams come true. Because <gasps> if American poets had taught us anything, it's the place where you go when you fall asleep. Got a lovely little poem here by Robert Louis Stevenson. In my best dad putting the kids to bed voice, I'll read it for you. From breakfast on through all the day, at home among my friends I stay. But every night I go abroad, afar into the land of Nod. All by myself I have to go, with none to tell me what to do. All alone beside the streams and up the mountain sides of dreams. The strangest things are there for me, both things to eat and things to see, and many frightening sights abroad, till morning in the land of Nod. Try as I like to find the way, I never can get back by day, nor can remember plain and clear the curious music that I hear. So that's that one. From Robert Louis Stevenson, you note the uh, play on the land of Nod and the idea of nodding off to sleep. And got another one here by Eugene Field. 
This is Winken, Blinken and Nod. I'm just going to read one verse of this because it's a bit longer. Winken and Blinken are two little eyes and Nod is a little head. And the wooden shoe that sailed the skies is a wee one's trundle bed. So shut your eyes while Mother sings of wonderful sights that be. And you shall see the beautiful things as you rock in the misty sea. Where the old shoe rocked the fishermen three, winking, blinking, and not. Uh, well, I'm off to bed. Uh, I can't keep my eyes open for some reason. I'm just so sleepy. Uh, good night. Sorry, I have to keep reminding myself about that rule that we have regarding not reading 19th century American poetry about little Dutch children going to bed. I forget that it makes you sleepy. I seem to recall my mum reading that to me as a little one. It's got me yawning now too. So this is basically just an exercise in word association because the Hebrew word looks like an English word and, of course, the two words mean nothing in common, but they look the same on paper. So you can see how some people got confused about their meaning. So uh, we better wake up. We'll have all our listeners asleep if we keep this up. Hey, you know what's more interesting than 19th century American poetry? Video games. Love me some video games. You ever play Command and Conquer? You, you played it on a PC, like a desktop computer, usually. Uh, although I think later on you could get it on various consoles. It came out in the 90s. And your goal was to build a military base and an army that would overpower the bad guys. But you also have the option to play as the bad guys against the goodies. In the video game series, the name of the evil bad guys was the Brotherhood of Nod. And the leader was a prophet whose name was Cain. It obviously derives its name from the very same Cain and the very same Nod of this Bible verse. Man, I lived and breathed that game for years. Highly addictive. You ever play that one, Chris? I haven't. I, I tend to avoid any game that uh, requires strategy and thinking. <laughs> also requires about 90% of your waking hours for several years. Mm. Anyway, the land of Nod is obviously a place in the Middle East, right? And we know that because it says that it's east of Eden, and we know exactly where that is, don't we? Because we spent two episodes of our podcast back in Season 2 finding out precisely where Eden was, didn't we? That's right, and if I remember correctly, we established without any doubt that the Garden of Eden was located in Jerusalem. I mean, actually, the Persian got no Lebanon, Persia, maybe Iraq. Actually, I have no idea. Yeah, you're not alone there, mate. Next time someone shows you one of those maps of the Bible lands, and they've got some area loosely designated as the land of Nod, just smile politely and say nothing because they're wrong. That word Nod just means wandering. And the Israelites know all about wandering. Remember that time they spent 40 years doing laps of the wilderness? That little episode occurred long before this story was told to them about Cain and Abel and all of that stuff. So they know exactly what it's like to be told by God that you're going to wander about aimlessly until you die. And despite the fact that Cain has a sort of genealogy in this text, which we'll get into beginning next week on the podcast, this whole chapter is about the fruitless and meaningless pursuit of rebellious idolatry and faithlessness toward Yahweh. So you can see how these are familiar themes for the Israelites who have as their historical backdrop their own land of wandering, where the bodies of their forefathers fell. This does not bode well for Cain and his descendants. We've got to keep the bigger picture in mind now and remember that the function of Genesis 1-4 to is to provide a microcosm of the entire Hebrew Bible narrative. The author mentions Eden here not as a reference to the place in the Syrian desert known as Eden, but as a reference to sacred space. This isn't about God's presence. This is about the place where God's people belong and where they were living until their idolatry brought them to the point of exile. It doesn't matter exactly where Eden was. This is Jerusalem, 
This is the place where God sat enthroned above the cherubim in his temple among his people. So I was right the first time then. What do I win apart from your respect? Yeah, well, you did say Jerusalem, but I really wanted to bring home the point that this isn't about natural geography. This is symbolic or cosmic geography. So you get a spiritual prize. Uh, And that being the case, it means that the land of wandering located eastward from there is not just the plains of Moab or the hill country of the Edomites where Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's even further east. It's Babylon. You're saying that Cain went to Babylon? Why doesn't the author just say that? Oh, he is saying that, but not in plain terms. Remember that the stories are designed to teach lessons and not to relay facts like we might expect to find in a modern history book. In this story, the land of Judah is the Garden of Eden, and the land of Nod is Babylon. This way, the entire audience of this text becomes a part of the story because they can see themselves in the picture. Let's talk about the idea of wandering. This is the kind of movement that you undertake when you're travelling about without any sense of direction or purpose. And we see this idea also used in situations where there's a direction and there's a purpose, but it's been forsaken for something else. Think about the Apostle Jude talking about wandering stars. People who have strayed off the path that was set for them will be wanderers until such time as they return to the path or they stop moving. Wandering is the movement of chaos and disorder because it's devoid of purposing any clearly defined direction that is in contrast to the expected direction. A wanderer may know exactly where they're headed, but it isn't where they should be going. The land of Nod is an interesting place then because for the Jews it functioned as a place of feeling lost and knowing that you were not where you were supposed to be. It can be extremely disorienting and confusing to be in a place where the rules and the culture are entirely different to your own. In the eyes of the Jews, it was a land of chaos and disorder and fruitless pursuits, and this shaped the Jewish understanding of Babylonian culture. For those Jews who eventually adapted and found ways to be comfortable in this new setting, it became a way of life, and many Jews still to this day live as wanderers on the earth. We've talked in the past about the use of that phrase in the East, to describe chronology and the idea of something having happened in the time before. So you might use that expression in the East to talk about something that happened earlier that day or perhaps many years ago. On this occasion, the terminology given for the word East has a stronger connection to geography than it does to any sense of time, but that doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility that there is a connotation of time in this text which we can explore. So if we consider the connection of the eastward direction with this time in the past, we can possibly get a sense that Cain's journey is leading him back to the way things were before God brought purpose and meaning to human life on the sixth day of creation, before Eden. Cain is returning to an animalistic way of life, self-serving and devoid of meaningful relationship with God or his fellow man. This is a powerful polemic, of course, because the Babylonians took great pride in their civilization and the technology they had and the diverse range of gods they served in their religion. So the idea that someone could be sent to Babylon to live the rest of their days in a meaningless existence, like an animal, was quite a slap in the face. Well, it's time for a change of pace. I might take the opportunity while we're here in this text to talk about the idea of a hollow earth, or some kind of subterranean realm of monsters and cryptids and government cover-ups. Uh, what? How did you get that out of this text? Well, this comes from the idea of being away from God's presence and hidden from his face. For a moment, you'll just have to forget that God is omnipresent and can see everywhere and just act like God can't see through a layer of topsoil or something. As if God is like Superman and there's this one thing that he can't see through. You diseased maniac! Did you really think you could hide it from me by encasing it in topsoil? 
Mold this dead into your prison bars. Superman, what a film. Anyway, if we forget about that little oversight, the other reason we find for people insisting that there must be some kind of subterranean realm beneath the Earth's crust is the common problem of seeing that word Earth in the biblical text and assuming that we're talking about a planet, which is, of course, a three-dimensional sphere. How can you travel in the Earth? With emphasis there on the word in. We have a problem here. If you travel in a three-dimensional object, then you must be within the confines of its surface. That would imply, in the case of a three-dimensional planet, that you're dwelling beneath the Earth's crust. But we have to remember what the biblical author intends by the use of the Hebrew word Eretz. More often than not, you're going to see this applied where we would use the term land or country. If I told you I had the fastest car in the country, you wouldn't assume that I'd buried it underground because I used the word in. Hebrew actually does have a word for a cave or a hollow, and that is not in use here. But some of you might be thinking, I'm pretty sure that the word Eretz does get used to describe the underworld sometimes. And you would be correct, but we've got to be careful because where the Hebrew uses Eretz to speak of some kind of subterranean place, it is used in conjunction with Sheol, the realm of the dead. And that's an important distinction to make because it's quite clear that this is not a place where the living can exist. As an example, let's have a look at Numbers chapter 16, reading from verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All right, that's the end of the reading there. What you see in this passage is that the ground opened its mouth, the people went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them. We have earth and ground used interchangeably here, but neither term is conflated with Sheol. So the subterranean realm of the dead is not the same thing as being in some kind of underground cave or some sort of subterranean extra-dimensional space. But it would be easy to get confused about that if you weren't paying attention to the text. Uh, and here's my, I've done my Superman impression, so you'll notice that my Lex Luthor impression sounds exactly the same. Oh, well, we all have our little false minds in California. Touché. And about all the conspiracy theory stuff, the underground military bases and all that kind of thing. Look, I don't know. Maybe it's real. Maybe it isn't. But let's not try to make the Bible say things that it isn't saying to support those ideas. That sort of stuff is going to have to stand on its own merit. We have to resist the temptation to drag the Bible into our worldview. When you're reading scripture, you've got to put it the other way around and allow scripture to be your worldview. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So you're saying that the earth isn't hollow and full of giants and aliens and Bigfoot-type creatures being protected by the U.S. government, that's a bit disappointing. Well, I'm just saying that the Bible doesn't tell us that. I'm also saying that I think that's a load of rubbish, but I didn't need Scripture to tell me that. Now, that passage you read from Numbers, uh, chapter 16, that uses earth and ground in an interchangeable fashion, but that's different to what we saw as we've been reading through Genesis so far in the podcast. You've been saying that the earth and the ground are very different terms. They have to be treated distinctly and not confused with one another or used 
interchangeably. So what's the difference? I mean, how come Moses doesn't write the same way in Numbers like he does in Genesis? Yeah, that's a good observation, Chris. I'm glad you mentioned it because there are some important things to point out. The first thing is that I don't intend for my analysis of the primeval history to shape the interpretation of every word choice in the Bible. What you're getting here in the podcast is partly textual analysis, partly word study, but it's also sensitive to the style and intent of the author, as well as messages, themes and genre within the text, with an ear toward the reception of that text as transmitted orally to its first audience by the reader. All of that is going to change from one text to another and from one author to another. In fact, there are a lot of variables, and yes, I'm trying to give my listeners a sense of the kind of sensitivity you need to have toward the biblical text in general, but that is by no means an exhaustive treatment of the biblical usage of the entire vocabulary across the span of some 1,500 years of authorship by many different authors in different languages and in different genres and styles. So it is quite legitimate to see that the author of Numbers and the author of the primeval history, whoever they may be, are employing different usages of the vocabulary to make their respective points. I don't have a problem with interpreting those usages on their own merits rather than trying to force one interpretation into two different contexts. And I say different contexts because, as you might have guessed, I don't believe that they are authored by the same person, at least not in the form that we have received them. I'm comfortable with mosaic authorship for the bulk of the Torah, but I also have no problem with the fact that there are plenty of parts of it that Moses didn't write. I'm going to suggest that the final form that we have of the primeval history is one of those parts. But here in Genesis 4, we have a wonderfully consistent application of symbolic language to describe the earth as land and the ground as its people. And it fits in so well with everything we've read so far from Genesis 1 up to this point. Their story is about to make a transition. We're going to start all that genealogy stuff, aren't we? Boring! Yeah, well, that'll be next week, but I promise you it won't be boring. Boring. It's not boring. It's going to be great. It's going to be fascinating. You'll be surprised. I'll be surprised if it doesn't send me to sleep. I'll be off to the land of night in no time. Ah, I see what you did there. No, it's going to be good. But before we do that, let's tackle some giant questions. You know what, Tim? I was just thinking it's about time that we tackled some giant questions. Let's do that. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay then, what do you got for us? I have this question here from Ricky. Uh, this came from the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook. Ricky says... We all agree that there are two primary entities that exist here, the spirit and the flesh. My concern is that there may be another presence which exists that we aren't familiar with. And it is of machine. I refer to a 2005 film called The Island, directed by Michael Bay, I believe. Looking at the future of America by 2025, there will be devices in everything which monitor our actions and movements. I believe the cloning experiments are not yet over and that the robot era is to come. Yet anything machine has little to do with spirit or flesh. I believe there is another entity at work here, one of which I do not know. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Ricky. There's some food for thought there. I remember that movie, The Island. You remember that one, Chris? You and McGregor? Yes, I do remember it. Actually, very uh, flashy Scarlett Johansson, I think, is in it as well. Um, I haven't seen it in ages, though, but that's the one where very rich people make clones of themselves for organ harvesting, and, and the clones will think they are living in some kind of quarantine shut away from the rest of the world. 
they don't know they're clones. They are, they are told the outside world to contaminate, to live in, and they all hope that they're going to win this lottery to get a pass to go to this place called the island, which is, you know, like a paradise, but instead they're getting summoned for surgical procedures and stuff like that where the rich people harvest their organs to uh, to keep themselves alive. Do you reckon stuff like that could really happen? Well, it's a fascinating possibility, but I think the way things are going at the moment, it's centred more around other ways to secure longevity for people like DNA modification and human-computer interface technology. These days, people are looking at organ replacement by means of simply growing organs in the lab and even 3D-printed alternatives. That's probably a lot easier than creating some kind of alternate universe for clones to live in. Yeah, that's true, but it's, it's still a pretty cool idea for its time. And I think uh, Ricky's question has more to do with machines and technology, though, rather than being primarily concerned with human cloning. Uh, yeah, and we certainly have a lot to think about with regard to nanotechnology and the surveillance state that we live in nowadays in the Western world. We used to think that machines would replace pretty much all human activity, but I think studies are starting to show that humans need to do stuff themselves. And they need to not only occupy themselves with recreation, but meaningful pursuits as well. I mean, I probably don't mind if a robot takes out my rubbish bins, but I still want to do things like driving my car by myself. And I think those days are numbered going by the current trends in automotive technology. Yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg, though, isn't it? Well, you know, maybe, Chris, but then people thought that the leading technology at every point in human history was the beginning of the end. Certainly, the Jews had a very low view of Babylonian technology in the biblical period. That's pretty much the whole thrust of First Enoch. But let's get at the core of the question here. The question presents three categories, flesh, spirit, and machine. So let's talk about what these are from a biblical perspective. Probably the easy part for us to understand is the spirit, which is really just that intangible part of us that makes us who we are. Then we have flesh, which could be described as the body that we have, which provides the means by which we as spirits are able to achieve work in the physical world. The body provides locality for the exercise of power. Machines function as the means by which we achieve work remotely, acting as separate entities to ourselves and yet entirely dependent on us for their existence, purpose and continued functionality. But that line is becoming blurred. Increasingly, mankind is using artificial means of achieving work as an extension and augmentation of the human body. We've always done this, first with primitive tools and levers, nowadays with high-powered computers and a connected world of smart devices. We're now seeing a trend towards the integration of artificial intelligence into the human brain. One thing that scientists are devoting a lot of time and energy to at the moment is figuring out just how our inner person or spirit, if you like, actually interfaces with our physical body. This is an interesting trend because it means that we're developing ways to control the body just as we would control a computer or a common machine. There's a catch though, because while the majority of our focus has been on the function of the human brain, Scientists are now realising that there's a lot more to bodily function and control than just what's going on upstairs. New research suggests that other parts of the body have an intelligence of their own which works in cooperation with the rest of the body. There's actually a neural network throughout the body, not just centralised in the brain. When we consider the integration of our inner person or spirit, if you like, with the body, we understand that losing part of your body does not constitute the loss of part of your spirit or something like that. And we mentioned that on a previous episode when we were talking about blood and we said that just because you've got a cut or a scratch doesn't mean that you lost part of your soul. And yet somehow, the inner person is fully integrated with the fullness of your body. It isn't diminished by the loss of limbs or fluids, and you don't get more of it by getting bigger or stronger. What we do know is that in order to function correctly, a person's entire body needs to operate according to the spirit that dwells within, controlling every part of the person. 
When we consider other types of spiritual beings like demons, for example, we note that they must have a living body to inhabit and a dead person cannot be possessed. So they have a limited ability to perform actions in a living host, but they're unable to animate a body on their own. In a biblical context, we can observe that the idols made by the pagans were unable to move or speak, and yet they provided a locality in which a real spiritual entity could reside in order to influence the world around them. I speculated a little on artificial intelligence and direct brain interface technology in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. But in my view, we have little to fear from the idea of machines or AI taking over the world. I do wonder if our increased dependence on technology may be exploited to create a vacuum in human mental autonomy that could be exploited by a hostile spiritual force. Uh, what could I have that again in English, please? Sorry, what I meant to say is we're relying so much on our technology that when it inevitably fails and the computers in our brain stop talking to us, we'll be looking for any little voice that might fill the void. That might provide opportunity for an unclean spirit to take advantage. And without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how is a person who does not know Jesus going to have the discernment to see what's going on there? And at that stage, we're not talking about the little voice that talks to you and says, do it. We're talking about a little voice that actually controls and moves your body. But all this is just based on one way to talk about the difference between flesh and spirit, because we can go back to scripture and see those terms used another way. We can also see the flesh as a term used to describe the natural tendencies of all life on earth in terms of its animal nature. This is contrasted with the spirit being spoken of in terms of the way that God works in our lives and enables us to transcend mere animal nature. At its base level, the work of the spirit begins with the recognition that we're made in the image of God. And as we respond to the work of God and cooperating, coming together with him, we invite the spirit of God to help us. So just to be clear, when I talk about the animal nature or the fleshly nature, I'm talking about that self-preservation drive that we have, which manifests in selfishness and greed. I'm talking about sexual promiscuity and that kind of thing. I'm talking about idolatry, which again is primarily motivated by greed. That desire to get what you need or want at any cost will drive sentient beings without the spirit of God toward idolatry. The nature of the flesh, or the animal nature, as I'll talk about it sometimes, is the nature that disregards our fellow man and has no love for God. So in that sense, things of a technological nature are really just the means by which we gratify the desires of the flesh. But it's important to remember that we can also use those things for good. So I don't think that we need to fear technology or be afraid of new things. We just need to use technology for the right reasons, to do good things. So that's just some of my thoughts, and hopefully it gives you something to think about. Uh, every episode we have something to think about, so thank you. All right, folks, I think we will wrap it up there and we will return to Genesis 4 next week. Yeah, next week's going to be interesting because we're going to talk about names in the Bible. You don't want to miss it. Awesome. Catch you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. 
production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken at gravesforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephen on Amazon and paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscom Read the blog, and us on the socials, and don't forget to subscribe to your friends for the show. Send us all your questions, and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, and God bless.
And here's me taking my shoes off in the office. Well, it was because they were damp and my socks were because that was it was raining and um, oh, yeah. no one sits next to me. So, you know, yeah. you can't do wet socks. You can't. Um, no, I, I despise wet socks and I will not stand for it. Nor should you. Challenges oh, ready. So, gladiator ready. Three, two, one. Oh, what a great show, Gladiators. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, well, uh, Mike Whitney. Yes, that's it. I was trying to think of the, the host. Is he still around? Still alive? He is still around, Mike Whitney. Okay. Yeah. The Green Power Ranger isn't. That's unfortunate. He was 49. And he, he was doing okay. Like, he was, yeah, he was quite well loved and stuff. But um, I know he had a bit of a troubled. Well, you know, I, I worry about those Power Rangers. I mean, they just, they don't talk to anyone. Power Rangers don't talk? Well, you wouldn't know if they were or not. Oh, because they're helmets? Mm. Oh, boy. Did you hurt your back with that stretch? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll need to sit down for a while. <laughs> think of some better jokes. And you'd be correct, but we've got to be careful because where the Hebrew uses Eretz to speak of some kind of subterranean place... Hmm, yawning. Let me try that again. It's weird to see you yawning, but no noise. Flesh, spirit, and machine. Oh my goodness, I need to stop yawning. Let me try that again. If you can say what you want to say succinctly. Yes, I like to be succinct and precise, and to say succinct precisely. Mm. I can't stop yawning now. It's all that nodding off. From breakfast on through all the day, at home among my friends I stay. But every night I go abroad, afar, into the land of Nod. All by myself I have to go, with none to tell me what to do. All alone beside the streams and up the mountainsides of dreams. The strangest things are there for me, both things to eat and things to see, and many frightening sights abroad, till morning in the land of Nod. Dry as I like to find the way, I never can get back by day, nor can remember plain and clear, curious music that I hear, curious music.